Hello, class, and welcome to Fail Films 101, a pod class about the shittiest movies humankind has to offer and why we love them. I'm your instructor, Professor Jay, and class is in session. So thank you all so much for bearing with me last episode when I got a, kind of the wild hair to jump snake, snakes on a plane up in the lineup. I know that was completely unexpected, and I know it was even worse of me to completely put off episode three. Uh, life kind of happened, and then I got sick. And by sick, I mean not like contagious, but I was very, very stuffed up, and that didn't make for very good audio uh pleasant sounds to listen to you know what i mean and i didn't want to subject you all to that so now here i am episode three troll two let's do it so troll two actually got its start as a venting project uh basically there was this couple in italy their names were Claudio Fragasso and Rosella Drudy, and I hope to God I'm pronouncing those names right. I apologize if I'm not. But they were increasingly pissed off that a lot of their friends were going vegetarian. So instead of, you know, being respectful of their friends and their friends' decisions, what they decided to do was make an anti-vegetarian propaganda movie. That's a great idea, isn't it? So the movie was originally titled Goblins, which honestly would have made so much more sense, but distributors in the U.S. thought it would be a good marketing decision to rename this movie Troll 2 in an attempt to make it look like a sequel to Troll 1, which came out in 1986. They thought that this would make the movie more money. In fact, probably the most common question I get in regards to this movie is, will I have to see the first Troll movie to understand Troll 2? And the answer is always, always, always no. Because there is literally no connection whatsoever between these movies other than the name. So, to clarify, you do not need to see the 1986 Troll movie to understand Troll 2 because there's no connection, there's no fucking trolls in this movie whatsoever, it is all goblins. There we go. So, this movie was written by Claudio and Rosella, and Claudio directed this movie under the pseudonym Drake Floyd to just kind of make him sound more American, I guess. Does that sound familiar? Trying to change things around to make them sound more familiar, or more American? Anybody? And it was produced by Edward Sarlui and Joe D'Amato, who used the Sweden name David Hills. And Joe D'Amato had a very controversial philosophy when it came to the production of films. He firmly believed that profitability was more important than entertainment value. So as long as you broke even or made money, it didn't matter how good the movie was. And this resulted in a lot of decisions that involved little to no money. This was a very low-budget movie, and it absolutely showed. The costumes looked 
like they came from the bargain bin in the back corner of the Halloween store. The the goblin costumes are literally just bad Halloween masks and burlap potato sacks. That's it. So that's something. And the score was composed entirely on one synthesizer. And one of the tracks in the in it, in the score. I swear I know words. I apologize for that. One of the tracks in the score is literally just a sped up demo track from that synthesizer. What's really sad is when you mo- when you watch the movie, you can't really tell which background song that is. That is the sped up demo track because they all sound like they could have been demo tracks for a synthesizer before you buy it. So that's fun. And the movie was filmed in East Jesus Nowhere, Utah. And pretty much all of the actors in this movie were responding to an open casting call, hoping to be an extra, basically. That's, yeah, nobody expected to get a speaking part in this movie because so few of the actors had any professional acting experience prior to this. And it shows. Oh, does it show. In fact, uh, the actor who wound up playing the dad, George Hardy, he was a dentist and he had zero acting experience. He absolutely thought that he was going to be an extra and he wound up getting one of the largest speaking roles in the movie. There's another actor who has kind of a bit part. He plays a storekeeper in the town where all this goes down, the town of Nilbog. And when you watch him, you think he's like a professional actor. He gives the most convincing performance out of anybody, and it's just completely disturbed, and you just get the willies from this guy, and you just think like, oh, this is this is raw. How did they get this guy to perform amongst these crappy actors? No offense if any of y'all are listening. You you did the best you could with what you were given. But like, how did this dude get this role with everybody else? It turns out the man who played the storekeeper, I can't remember his name for the life of me. I'm sure it'll come to it the second I hit the stop recording button. But he was on a day trip from a mental institution where he was at an inpatient program at the time. So he was out on a day trip. He had smoked a ton of pot beforehand. And, you know, to, to neurotypical people, pot doesn't really do much. To, but to those who are mentally ill, it can be more psychoactive. So he uh, had no idea what was going on pretty much the entire time. And the disturbed performance that he was given giving... He insists that he was not acting. He was, that was just 100% him coming through. And there was a major language barrier between the cast and the crew. Uh, the crew was pretty much 100% Italian and barely spoke 
any English whatsoever. Of course, the cast was 100% Utah Americans who barely spoke any languages that weren't English. In a lot of places like that, you know, foreign language isn't something that they really teach in the schools unless it's, like, required by the state government. So, major, major language barrier there. In fact, uh, Claudio had, you know, he'd written the script in as best of English as he could must as he could muster, him and Rosella. And the actors would go so far as to, you know, they would offer to correct the grammar and the syntax and basically make the script sound like more naturally spoken English. But Claudio would insist that the lines be spoken verbatim, exactly as they were written. And he would apparently give some, you know, interesting, like, stage direction and delivery direction. And Claudio would go on to deny this pretty much every time he was asked about it. He even went so far as to call the actors dogs, which is apparently Italian slang for bad actors. And he did this at a convention panel, right with those actors, you know, being right there. So that's certainly something. And the little boy who plays the main, the pretty much the main character, Joshua, he, I think, was about eight years old at the time of filming. And he grew up and became a filmmaker. And he tracked down all of his old co-stars, and he made a documentary about the about the making of Troll 2. And it was called Best Worst Movie. And that is a journey. It is genuinely a... It's a treat to watch. I love it. And I'm going to see if I can find uh, Best Worst Movie. And uh, if I do... I will post it in the uh, in the Google Classroom for y'all to watch, cause it's it's a delight. And if I can't find it, maybe once I get the watch parties up and running, which who fucking knows if that'll happen. I am so sorry to get y'all's hopes up about that, but again, I Facebook hates me. But if I can figure out how to do it, we'll do a double feature with Troll 2 and Best Worst Movie, and it'll be great. It'll be so much fun. So now that we've gone into how this movie came into the world, like a beautiful newborn baby, except I would not call this beautiful at all. It, it's more like a baby that like came out with its head spinning around in circles like the Antichrist, in my opinion. Um, let's go ahead and get into the plot. So I actually, we might get a little more into detail than usual with this one, because I've got, I, I kind of started a new method of, you know, instead of just reading a plot synopsis, I watched the movie and took notes as I watched it. And I think this is going to be my new method of talking about the movie plot from now on. So I think it's going to get a little more in depth and... It's going to be exciting. I'm still not going to talk about the end because I would love for y'all to go and watch this movie and experience the end for yourself. But I will give you a, 
a pretty detailed breakdown of the plot because it's this is a fun movie and I actually really enjoyed, you know, taking the notes for this. So the movie kind of opens up Princess Bride style. It's a grandpa telling a grandson a bedtime story. No biggie, right? I mean, this was filmed in 1989, so I'm pretty sure Princess Bride was big at the time. So, of course, we're going to start by, you know, ripping off the most popular movie of the era. And the story that is being told by the grandpa to to the young boy is revolving around a young man who's lost in the woods and is deceived by a goblin who is uh, who's in disguise as a beautiful woman. And that's what they describe her as. But in my opinion, she looks a lot like I did before I transitioned. So that really throws me for a loop. And the goblin in disguise feeds the young man some green goo and that causes him to kind of sweat green food coloring, essentially. And it turns him into a plant-human hybrid, which is the goblin's favorite food, basically. It makes the people edible to goblins. And the mom walks in as the story's being told, and she asks who Joshua, the little boy, is talking to. And he says, Grandpa Seth was telling me a story. And he cuts himself off. And we pan out, and Grandpa Seth is gone. Ooh. Turns out he's been dead for the last six months. And Joshua's been taking it very hard. And he has been hallucinating visions of his grandpa. As I'm sure, you know, a lot of young people may do when they lose somebody very important to them. It's just a thing that happens and the mom you know sits down and talks to him and she's like you know he was he's been gone for over six months the doctor says that this is just a figment of your imagination he will always live in your heart but you must banish him from your mind those are the words she uses you must banish him from your mind which is such a great thing to tell your grieving son such a great thing to tell him And she goes on to remind Joshua and basically explain to the audience that they're about to go on vacation for a whole month. And a month in the country is going to do them good. And it's not the mom who describes this. This is described later on. But it's basically an exchange between two families where a family from the country is going to come live in their nice suburban house, and they're going to stay in the family's country house for a month. Of course, this is, you know, before Airbnb is a thing, because it's filmed in 1989, the movie came out in 1990. But this is, you know, it sounds like a very pleasant thing, especially when you're, you know, grieving the loss of somebody very important to you. Sometimes it's nice to just go and take a breather and as someone who moved from the suburbs to the country recently i can attest to the fact that it's just so much more relaxing out here it's not nearly as stressful as what people down here would consider city life so i definitely understand the reasoning behind what they're doing and After, you know, they go on about that, we cut to the teenage daughter, Holly, 
She's listening to music and lifting weights in her bedroom, as, you know, all teenage girls do. Just lifting weights. And suddenly we see her boyfriend, Elliot, sneak in through the window. And... He's, you know, doing his typical teenage boy thing. Oh, I'm the victim of a nocturnal rapture. I need to release my lowest instincts with a woman. She, you know, punches him in the in the balls and says, release your instincts in the bathroom. Which, as, as much as I will shit on the writing of this movie, that's one of my favorite lines of any movie ever. Like, that is some funny shit. Not like this is so bad funny. To me, it's one of the funniest things, but especially like how badly it's delivered just adds to it. And jo- and uh, not Joshua, Elliot, the boyfriend, he, you know, keels over and he's like, are you trying to turn me into a homo? Which is apparently what happens when you kick someone in the balls or punch them in the balls, they become gay. She goes, it wouldn't be too hard. If my father discovers you here, he'd cut off your little nuts and eat them. He can't stand you. Which, what? (laughs) Excuse me? (laughs) Who's, what? After that brilliant line about release your instincts in the bathroom, we're going to talk about your dad cutting off your boyfriend's balls and eating them? What? Now remember, as we sp- as we've talked about before, this this was written by people who did not speak English very well, which is all fine and dandy. English is a very hard language to learn. But native English speakers offered to correct the script for them so many times and they still said no. So I think they kind of have any criticism for the writing coming. Anyway, so Holly goes on to explain to Elliot, again, for the audience's benefit, pretty much, that she likes him, but her family believes that he's a good-for-nothing who spends too much time with his friends. And she pretty much agrees with the spending too much time with with his friends part. Which, I mean, he's a teenage boy. He's gonna have friends. It's part of being a teenage boy. And she's like, nothing's wrong with having friends if you want to remain a virgin for the rest of your life. Which, what? I'm pretty sure people who have no friends are the ones who tend to remain virgins in high school. At least that's how I remember it. But, yeah, so we can tell right away that they have a very healthy relationship. Such a healthy relationship. So, Holly says that she's going to try and convince her family to let her bring Elliot on vacation. He tries to convince her to let him bring his friends. And she's like, um, no, don't bring your friends. And the next thing we cut to is Holly crying in the car. We could have waited 15 more minutes. Apparently they had already waited an hour and a half for him and he didn't show up. So... That's something. Of course, there's an argument going on between Dad and Holly. And he he actually says, we, wait, we waited an hour and 30 minutes and we still didn't have any sign of your beau. And she goes, he's not my beau. He's my boyfriend. Yep. And they're arguing back and forth for a while. And the mom tries to diffuse the tension in the car. 
by asking Joshua to sing that song that she likes so much. And that song is Row, Row, Row Your Boat. Did you, like, that song I like so much, did you forget the name of the song? When it's, the name of the song is the first line of the song? Like, I'm sorry, that's another thing that, like, makes me go, what the fuck, so early into the movie. So that's certainly something. And it cuts to Elliot and his friends, Brent, Drew, and Arnold, and they're driving to Nilbog in an RV. That's the name of the town that they're going to, by the way, Nilbog. N-I-B, or N-I-L-B-O-G. I swear I know how to spell out loud. Spoiler alert, I, I actually don't. If I'm trying to spell something out loud, my brain turns into mush. I didn't do very well in spelling bees as a kid. But they are driving to Nilbog in an RV, and Elliot is trying to convince his friends that the town is full of these full of beautiful girls, free and unattached. Those are his words. And then we cut back to the car, and Joshua's saying that he doesn't feel good. And all of a sudden, he starts sweating green. And the family's like, oh, he's ready to be eaten. And suddenly, they're goblins. But it was all a dream. And Joshua wakes up screaming, no, don't eat me. And yeah, everyone's like, um, wait, what? And then later on, they, uh, they're driving down the road, or they're continuing to drive down the road. And Joshua sees Grandpa Seth on the side of the road holding a sign that says stop them. So he begs the uh, parents to stop the car and he tries to say he has to throw up. And he goes and talks to hitchhiker Grandpa. And the family's like, Joshua, what are you doing? And then we cut back to the hitchhiker and it's not Grandpa Seth anymore. It's just a regular hitchhiker asking for a ride. And they're like, Joshua, stop talking to that stranger and get into the van right now as any logical human would do if they saw their child talking to a strange hitchhiker. So, yeah. And later on, down the road, after they get back in the van, the, the family passes the teenage boy's RV, which seems to have run off the road. And they're, you know, jumping and screaming and yelling for Holly, and I don't know how Holly even sees them because, like, they're really far off the road. Like, they're high up on a mountain, basically, and they, the teenage boys are at the bottom of the mountain jumping and screaming. But she looks out the window, she looks at them, and she gives them a finger. And they keep driving. So that's something. And the family arrives in Nilbog. There's no sign of any people. And Joshua's like, uh, I have the creeps. Can we go home? And the mom's like, don't listen to him. Lead the way, farmer, to her husband. Because they're basically doing this to live out the dad's childhood fantasy of being a farmer. What every little boy dreams of being. And the van drives away. And they show a building that was previously empty. And all of a sudden... Oh my goodness, all these people are showing up in the window, staring at the van. Ooh, spoopy. 
And they get to the farmhouse where they meet the family who they're going to be exchanging houses with, supposedly. The family is a bit odd. They don't say much. And they exchange keys. And as the family's pulling away, the little boy throws a uh, baseball at Joshua. And Joshua picks it up and there's green writing. And it says, eat before we eat you. Subtle. Very, very subtle. And they walk into the house, and the family whose house they're staying in left behind all of this delicious-looking food. And it looks like it's mostly pastries with, like, green sprinkles on it and green, like, icing and shit like that. And, of course, Joshua's like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. And he sees Grandpa Seth at the window. And Grandpa Seth says, you don't let them eat, Joshua. And he snaps his fingers, and time stops for 30 seconds, and he's like, you have 30 seconds to come up with a distraction. And guess what? Distraction Joshua comes up with. He stands on the chair. He says, I must do it. I must do it. He unzips his pants, and he whips it out, and he pisses on all the food. Thankfully, we don't see that part. We just see him unzipping his pants, and the next thing we see is his dad carrying him over his shoulder up the stairs, and he carries him to his room, and he says that you can't piss on hospitality, I won't allow it. And then he goes on this long-winded lecture about how he, how he really did suffer from hunger when he was a kid. So he's had more practice with than it, than, at it than Joshua has. He's basically convinced that Joshua's like going on a hunger strike because he doesn't want to be on vacation in this town. And the dad's like, I'll accept the challenge. Just remember that I've had more practice than you. So, that is a thing that happens. And after that, it cuts to the teenagers in the RV. They're watching a really weird movie, and I mean really weird. There's, like, somebody in a gorilla suit, and I guess they have a jetpack on, and the gorilla goes flying up, and the guys aren't really reacting to it, which, to me, proves that this movie is not real, because if this were me and my friends watching this movie... That would be a bad movie club movie for starters. I don't know if I mentioned it before, but some of my friends and I get together about once a month or so and we watch bad movies. I think I did actually mention that in the Snakes on a Plane episode because that's the because bad movie club that month was what made me want to bump Snakes on a Plane up into the bump it up in the lineup. But yeah, that would have been a bad movie club movie and everybody would have been losing their shit at that part. But these kids are just sitting there stone-faced eating popcorn. And Arnold's like, whatever, I'm going to go outside for a smoke. So he does, and he sees a young woman, and he is, who is, and the woman is sweating green, and she's, you know, running through the woods terrified. And this dumbass thinks it's a great idea to go ahead and chase a woman who is already obviously scared. And he's yelling, wait, ma'am, stop. And he fucking tackles her. You moron. Oh my god, this part pisses me off so much. And she's like, wait, you're human? And he's like, yeah, I'm very human. Do you want to see? Like a fucking idiot. 
and all of a sudden they're surrounded by goblins and I think he's the only person in this movie who sees these goblins the way the audience does in that they're basically little uh, little people in bargain bin Halloween masks and potato sacks holding really fake spears. And he's like, listen up, you dwarves. You better get out of here. Blah, blah, blah. And they all just kind of look at each other and one of them throws their spear and fucking stabs him with it. And he's like, oh, I guess this is a real thing that's happening. And she, the woman, whose name we never learned, by the way, just kind of picks him up and says, hey, let's go. And they go running through the woods. But while, when he gets stabbed by the spear, they, his friends hear him scream from the RV and they just think it's him getting some. Like, oh, hey, I guess Arnold found a girl and... He's deflowering her, or she's deflowering him. <laughs> so, the green sweating woman and Arnold run off, and they find what looks like an abandoned church. And they go inside. It's filled with plants. Some people might find that cool. Some people might find that creepy. But they come up, uh, they're like, what kind of place is this? And this woman just comes and oh my god, this woman is probably the hammiest actor in this movie. And I love her so much. <laughs> but she's like, this is my house! And she introduces herself. Uh, she always introduces herself with her full name, by the way. She's Credence Leonor Gilgood. And she's basically a druid priestess whose ancestors came from Stonehenge. Yup. So Arnold is like, uh, please call the nearest hospital. We're very not well. And she's like, there is no hospital in Nilbog. We are used to curing ourselves. I'm telling you, this woman is like, her performance is so hammy. I love it. It, it she just goes all out. She goes hard. She takes her role very, very seriously. Like, to me, it's a lot like throwing a Shakespearean actor into <sighs> I don't know, anything that's not Shakespeare, but something really, really lowbrow, specifically. So, Credence Leonor Gilgood offers them a broth that is bubbling and it contains sap from the forest. And they drink the broth, and the woman suddenly begins dramatically, by the way, dramatically changing into the humid-plant hybrids that we spoke about earlier. And all of a sudden, goblins come out of nowhere and begin eating her. And this basically reveals Credence to be the queen of the goblins. And this part of the movie is where we get our big iconic line that pretty much all of the movies that we've discussed so far have. Now, I'm, I will say that not every bad movie has a big iconic line like this. It is just, it's not in every movie, but the ones that do have these big iconic lines are just so golden. But the big iconic line, as he's watching this random woman he met in the woods be eaten 
by little men in dollar store Halloween masks and burlap potato sacks. He goes, they're eating her. And then they're going to eat me. Oh, my God. Except I think it goes on much longer than that. But that's the big iconic line in the movie, everybody. And after that, it cuts back to the family. And, of course, Joshua's complaining about, this place is weird. And it cuts to Holly, who's dancing in her room. Like, not even like your typical, you know, teenage girl dancing in her room. It's like, it's real weird. And then she starts giving a fake speech in the mirror where she's basically giving Elliot an ultimatum, her or her friends, because that's so healthy. And then all of a sudden, bam, Grandpa Seth is in the mirror calling out to Joshua, and she starts screaming, and she's like, oh my god! And Joshua's like, see, it wasn't me this time! I'm not crazy! He doesn't say I'm not crazy, but it's very heavily implied. So mom and dad and Joshua go into the room and the dad's like, there's nobody here. Have you been smoking dough, Polly? And she's like, I promised I wouldn't. So Joshua bravely offers to trade rooms with Holly. And after everybody but Joshua clears out, Grandpa Seth comes in and talks to Joshua. He's like, yeah, I'm still trying to figure out the layout of this house. Sorry about that. And the grandpa goes on to explain why he can't, you know, talk to the parents about this. And he's like, your parents never listened to me when I was alive, especially your mom. That's why she married that good for nothing. Sound familiar? Uh? But yeah. So after that, it cuts to, I forget which comes first, the RV or the house. But in both the RV and the house, there's no breakfast. The RV doesn't have anything, and all the house has is this gross-ass old sour milk. So the dad and Joshua go into town to go to the general store, as does Drew, one of the friends that's in the RV. So Drew goes jogging to the store, which that's the logical thing to do to just go jogging. And while he's jogging, the sheriff of Nilbog picks him up. And he's like, oh, that's very nice of you. Thank you. Sorry about that. My computer just came unplugged temporarily because I attempted to move it. And there's a cat in my lap who is currently laying on the power cord. So if you heard a little doo-doo-doo-doo, that's why. But. So he's in the sheriff's car. And the sheriff offers him a sandwich, which basically looks like green frosting on a hamburger bun. And he's eating it, and he's like, oh, this is really good. And he's talking about how, friend, like, the sheriff is telling everyone, or telling Drew, that everyone in Nilbog is really friendly, especially to tourists, blah, blah, blah. He drops him off at the general store. And Drew asks, uh, hey, sheriff, where do the girls go at night? And the sheriff just starts laughing uncontrollably. And he drives away. And the general store is full of the same gross sour milk that was found earlier in the house. And this is when the storekeeper comes out. 
And I can't even describe the performance that this man gives other than what I told you already, that it is just him being so genuine and I can't even. I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can find a YouTube video that's like a supercut of all of his scenes just so you can see it because it is stunning. And again, he wasn't even like acting. He was just being himself. And he disturbedly explains that there's that you know he grosses out when the kid mentions eggs. He says, "Are you crazy, boy? We're all vegetarians in Nilbog." When he asks about bacon, and he sends him home with a jug of that gross ass milk for free. So, yeah, he says that it's because they love tourists in Nilbog, and they love to be hospitable to them. So the teenager starts sweating green and he just kind of stumbles out of the store. Drew, that's his name. Drew stumbles out of the store. And some of the like locals, quote unquote, of Nilbog find him outside the store and they tell him that his friend told him to meet up at the old house that looks like a church. And Credence is there watering a plant that she's talking to. And she's talking about how she's going to go bring a, a special pudding with organic ingredients and things like that over to her new neighbors. And she starts to leave, and we pan over ever so slowly. And the plant that she's watering is Arnold! And he's definitely a man-plant hybrid. He's got some bark over his mouth and twigs coming out of him. He basically looks like half-Groot. Except he can't move or speak. And then it cuts to Joshua and his dad making it to the grocery store. But there's a sign on the door that says something along the lines of, like, they're closed for church service. So the dad's like, we just have to wait and be patient. And he sits in a rocking chair in front of the general store and starts reading a vegetable cookbook. And he just kind of slowly falls asleep while he's doing that. And Joshua walks up to a truck and looks in the truck like rearview side mirror thing and starts asking for Grandpa Seth to, you know, try and conjure him up. And that's when he sees a Nilbog sign in the background and he realizes that Nilbog is Goblin. Spelled backwards. <gasps> dum, dum, dum. And while he looks over and sees that his dad is basically passed out, he takes his skateboard because, of course, he has a fucking skateboard. He's an eight-year-old in 1989-1990 when the movie comes out. And he skateboards away. And we cut back to Drew, and he is sweating green, and he's stumbling through the woods. He opens up the jug of milk, and he spits it out because it's fucking gross. And, yeah, that's that scene. And then it shows Credence showing up at the house where the family is, and she introducing herself as their neighbor, Credence Leonor Gilgood. And then Holly walks down the stairs, and she calls her appetizing and provocative, which absolutely has a pedophile vibe to it. It's real gross. Of course, the audience knows that she wants to literally eat this child, but the mom, you can tell, is taking it as, um, why are you saying these things about my daughter? That's real gross. She's like 16. 
And yeah, then it cuts back to Joshua skateboarding past a mysterious abandoned building, and he decides to go inside where he sees fucking goblin church going on. That's right, goblins have church where they talk about how gross and sinful meat is, and how it makes humans' bodies unpure, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. They don't even talk about God or Jesus or whatever. They just talk about meat being gross and sinful. So Joshua goes up the stairs, and he finds a hole in what is the floor to him, but the ceiling to the goblins in church. He's like a floor above them. So that he can, like, listen to, to goblin church, and he sees the family that... Who, they're staying in their house who's supposed to be staying at their house and they're like wait a minute what what are they doing here they're not supposed to be in town and that's when joshua's skateboard rolls down i guess a ramp into the area where goblin church is going on and the goblin creature grabs joshua's face from up through the hole and then it cuts to holly going over to Elliot's RV and she gives him his ultimatum of it's either me or your friends take your pick buddy and he's like what are you talking about and then she just fucking punches him in the face like what that was completely unwarranted There's so much wrong with their relationship. And they're only like 16. This is not healthy, kids. It's not healthy at all. Let your, let your significant other have friends. And don't punch them in the face when they, you know want to hang out with their friends it's not that hard <sighs> and you know after that it cuts back to goblin church and the preacher and the sheriff are holding joshua down and they're trying to force feed him ice cream while the whole weird ass goblin congregation is chanting open your mouth my little friend Please open it. There's chanting that in unison. And that's when the dad runs in and asks what they're doing to his son, you know, rightfully so, as any sane parent would do in that situation. And Joshua tries to explain, you know, what's going on. And the preacher is like, uh, we were just giving him some ice cream. And he see the dad sees the family and he's like, what are you guys doing here? The family that's supposed to be staying at their own house or at their house, whose house that they are currently staying in. And he's like, uh, we had car trouble. We're leaving this evening. And of course the dad's a little suspicious. So him and Joshua slowly back out of the room. And afterwards, after Joshua and, uh, his dad are gone, the goblin preacher looks and he goes we need more time for things to happen that is the vaguest shit that anyone could be saying about something like this like how vague is that we need more time for things to happen <laughs> yep so drew 
finally, no, sorry, I skipped ahead a little bit. We're back to Holly and Elliot arguing at the RV. Brent's trying to calm them down. Brent is the other one of their friends. And that's when Dad and Joshua show up, and the dad asks what Holly's doing there. And Elliot tries to explain, but the dad says that he doesn't speak to people who arrive late and upset their girlfriends. And he tells Elliot, if you want to have a serious talk, which Elliot said that they needed to have a serious talk right before that. So he goes, if you want to have a serious talk, you have to forget, you need to forget about your friends and comes with us. So he does that and leaves Brent at the RV by himself. What a great friend Elliot is. Such a good, a good person. So that's when Drew arrives at the church house thing, and he starts passing out, and Arnold sees him, and he has no mouth, and he must scream. So Drew rips the bark off of Arnold's mouth, and Arnold's like, uh, please get me out of here. And Drew starts to drag the pot that Arnold is planted into out of the building, but he stops because he doesn't feel good, understandably so. And that's when Credence shows up and she somehow knocks Drew onto a nearby bed. I'm not sure if she punches him or kicks him or slaps him or what. All we see is Drew flying onto the bed. And then she tells Arnold that he needs to be punished for his escape attempt. So she just breaks out a chainsaw. She just gets this chainsaw out of nowhere. It just kind of shows up. And she starts to cut off some of Arnold's plant components to make a milkshake for Drew. Yep. And then we cut back to Dad, Joshua, Holly, and Elliot getting to the house. And the people of Nilbog are throwing a party to make up for the misunderstanding earlier. And music's playing, and there's all this green food. And, of course, Joshua's like, oh, no, da 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 And the dad's like, that's enough. Stop not appreciating their hosp- hospitality. Hospitality, go to your room. And Joshua's up in his room trying to summon Grandpa Seth in the mirror, and the party's continuing downstairs. They're bringing the family cake and starting to, like, close in on them and make everybody really, really uncomfortable. And we cut back to Joshua's room. Credence shows up in the mirror instead of Grandpa Seth, and she breaks through, and when she breaks through, she goes from her human form to her goblin form. And then, out of nowhere, Grandpa Seth shows up and cuts up, cuts off her arm. And we cut back to Credence at the church house, and she's pulling her arm back, and there's just a little stub of an arm, and it's bleeding. And, yeah. And she just yells, That is enough! in her hammy voice. And... Then we cut back to Grandpa Seth, who is holding a fire extinguisher, and he just hands his eight-year-old grandson a Molotov cocktail, because that's a smart thing to do. That's brilliant. Oh my god. That's another, another thing that drives me nuts. I understand that the eight-year-old is the only one who can see you in your current dead people form. Fine, whatever. But maybe instead of you having the fire extinguisher and him having the Molotov cocktail, maybe you should switch that. Maybe. I mean, I understand that fire extinguishers can be heavy, 
But let's not give an eight-year-old a Molotov cocktail. I don't care how dead you are, old man. You don't give an eight-year-old a Molotov cocktail. That's... Ugh. Sorry, that's apparently my meltdown of the day. So, after Grandpa Seth gives Joshua a Molotov cocktail, he says he's going to create some confusion with the fire extinguisher instead of using it for its intended purposes. You know, putting a fire out. He goes over the plan with Joshua of how to use a Molotov cocktail. And then we cut to the people of Nilbog surrounding the family and Elliot and clapping and making them super uncomfortable and trying to get them to eat the cake. The goblin preacher shows up and snatches the Molotov cocktail out of Joshua's hands, saying that they'll never be able to stop him. And he tells Grandpa Seth to go back to hell. And he tries to banish him to hell using the magic stone, which we literally know nothing about beforehand. We hear nothing about a magic stone up until this point. And the Goblin Preacher starts to banish Grandpa Seth back to hell. Which, what was Grandpa Seth doing in hell? Hmm. I'm sure there was some interesting things that got him there in the first place. Like giving an eight-year-old a Molotov cocktail! I'm pretty sure that sends someone to hell. But before he goes back to hell, Grandpa Seth has one more trick up his sleeve. And he, I think he snaps his fingers, and the Molotov cocktail sets fire while it's in the Goblin Preacher's hand. And the Goblin Preacher catches fire. And the dad runs out, grabs the fire extinguisher, and puts the Preacher out. And we see the burned corpse of a goblin where the Preacher once was. So the sheriff looks at the dad who tried to, you know, put out the fire on the preacher. He looks at the dad and says, he was one of us and you killed him. I mean, the dad definitely didn't kill him, but okay. He definitely tried to save his life. And then he goes, now we will we'll do the same to you. And... Plot-wise, that's where I'm going to go ahead and leave y'all, because I don't want to spoil anything else. Except for one upcoming scene that has nothing to do with anything. It's ridiculous. Okay, so Credence, uh, she uses the Stonehenge magic stone to make herself young and hot. And she goes to the RV where Brent is all by himself. And she has a sexy dress, some sexy music magically playing in the background, and an ear of corn. And Brett is watching TV in the RV, and all of a sudden he sees young, sexy Credence on screen in the woods, kind of sexily posing with the ear of corn. And she's like, do you want it? Shall we eat it together? And he's like, what kind of show is this? And she goes, I'm not a program. Come outside and see for yourself. And she gets him to invite her into the RV. 
And she starts posing sexily with the ear of corn in the RV. And she goes, what's the matter? Aren't you hungry? And he goes, actually, I like popcorn. And she goes, well, no problem. All we have to do is heat it up. And she puts the ear of corn between her mouth and Brent's. And they start eating it. While laying on top of each other, basically they're kind of making out with an ear of corn between their mouths. <laughs> and while they're doing this, popcorn just starts popping up out of nowhere and just filling up the RV while this is happening. <laughs> This scene has nothing to do with anything in the plot. It just happens. And then later on, it cuts to Brett, or Brent, whatever his name is, by himself. Just surrounded by popcorn. All you can see is his face. And he wakes up. And he starts spitting out popcorn. And he goes, please, no more popcorn. Again, that has nothing to do with the plot. So it's not a spoiler. It's just a thing that happens. But with that, with that lovely little note, I'll go ahead and leave off talking about the rest of the plot so that y'all can watch the end for yourself because it's the end is something else and I just I don't want to spoil it but I had to I had to talk about the popcorn scene it was a requirement <laughs> yeah <laughs> so I'm not quite sure why this happened it's two days after I posted the initial episode and I went through and I re-listened to it, and for whatever reason, the initial wrapping it up segment was just two minutes of silence, which was certainly not how it was when I recorded it, so I'm just going to start all over with that. Thank you all so much for listening, for bearing with me, um, for putting up with all of my nonsense. Next week, we're going to talk about Birdemic Shock and Terror, which is truly a gem. It's a great, great movie, and by great, I mean so god-awful. Um, I went ahead and I posted the Oh My God scene in the Google Classroom, so that's there. I'm go also going to continue to look for the popcorn scene. I've had a little bit of difficulty finding a link to Best Worst Movie, but I'm going to take care of that. Hopefully, if not, um, I will probably buy it and get, if I can get Michael Paul Stevenson's permission to post it in the Google Classroom, that would be awesome because it's a great movie and I don't want to rip it off of him. So there's that. Um, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Stitcher, Spotify, CastBox, pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we can also be found on Facebook at Fail Films 101. 
We can be found on Twitter at FailFilms101. You can submit any and all suggestions to our Gmail account, failfilms101 at gmail.com. And our Google Classroom, you can find us at classroom.google.com slash ZWI513S. That's ZWI513S. And on that note, thank you again for joining us. I will post next week's episode on Birdemic Shock and Terror, most likely on Monday or Tuesday. And I will see y'all then. Class dismissed. Don Packard. That is his name. That is the name of the actor who plays the storekeeper. Don Packard. I knew I would remember as soon as I finished recording.